1: to create a listener account, and in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening, so you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat, and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Welcome to the New Books Network, and today, episode focus on genocide studies. My name is Yakir Englender, your host, and today we will speak on the book, Testimonies of Resistance. Published in 2018. The Zonder Commando, the special squad of enslaved Jews laborers who were forced to work in the gas chambers and crematoria of Auschwitz-Birkenau comprise one of the most fascinating and troubling topics within Holocaust history. In this dialogue, Professor Dominique Williams will help us to understand that who are these Zonderkommando? and how we can learn about them. We will focus on the cruelty of the Nazis to demand from Jews to do this role and also about the complexity of the role itself. We will think together about the testimonials of the, new, of the few survivors who survive from this unit, the Holocaust, but also on the hiding writings and art Some of them hide and left for us, and much more. Professor Dominique Williams edited this volume of articles together with Professor Nicholas Cher. Together, they also co-authored two more books on the same subject, Matters of Testimony and the Mm Auschwitz-Sonderkommando. Professor Williams is senior lecturer in Holocaust and Genocide Studies it's North Umbria University. Um, so welcome, Dominique. And my first question is, can you share with our audience what have made you to choose to, do, to dedicate your research to the question of the Sonderkommando?
2: Well, I, I can blame it all on Nicholas Chair. Um, my, my background is in, um, I guess, initially in literature. Um, I did a PhD, which was um, a literature PhD. It was at the Center for Jewish Studies at the University of Leeds, um, but it was about English literature early um, 20th century um, Nick chair um, who also studied at Leeds came to me after we'd finished our phds um, and said you know there's there's uh, there's a topic that I'm interested in um, doing more research on i had done a little bit on it before um, which was the writings of the Auschwitz on the commando the scrolls of Auschwitz um, and he said, "You know, would you be interested in working on this with me?" And my initial thought was, "Well, I'm not really sure that I do want to. It's it's very, very difficult material, right?" Um, I'd done some work in my masters, at my MA on the Holocaust, and thought, mm, "I'm not sure if this is for me." But um, in the end, he persuaded me that this was this was something would be worthwhile for us to work on together. Um, so we we co-authored a book. About the the writings of the Zonder Commando, uh, matters of testimony, which Berghahn Books also published, and then um, following up on that, we found that there were still questions that we were uh, we wanted to ask that we thought needed to be investigated, and so that's that's meant that we're we've carried on publishing about it. Um, the Auschwitz Zonder Commando, um, which we published with um, Palgrave Macmillan, is about um, post war testimony from the Zonder Commando, and then. Testimonies of Resistance, um, this recent edited collection um, has got a a group of scholars together, an international um, set of scholars together to write about uh, some of the questions that, you know, we we felt still needed to be discussed.
0: And can you share with us, Dominique, about the title? Um, You called it Testimonies of Resistance. Can you share with us a little bit about the term, like, why did you choose Resistance?
2: well i think resistance is is really important when we're thinking about the zonda commando for um well for a number of reasons but i get, i i guess we could flag up two so one is firstly that it's an important way in which people have thought about them okay it's part of their image it's not the only image of the zonda commando but it's one image of them which is to say that they are famous for the uprising that happened in October 1944 in Auschwitz-Birkenau um, and it's one of the things that is that is known about them. Um, and the other thing and this is partly the reason why we've called it Testimonies of Resistance is that um, something that they're much less well known for um, is writing these testimonies writing the Scrolls of Auschwitz the documents that they buried in the grounds of the crematoria describing what they'd seen, uh, what they felt about, um, what they were co-opted into into being part of this process of mass murder. Um, And those testimonies are also a form of resistance. Um, And it's worth bearing in mind also that the testimony doesn't only take written form. There are also photographs, of course, and those are quite famous as well. But those are photographs that were taken by um, one member of the Zonder Commando helped by another um, set of people from the Zonder Commando that were testifying to that, that process of mass murder and that were um, also, in doing that, attempting to resist it.
0: Thank you. So I would love if we can start um, from the beginning, which is Dominique, can you, can you help us to understand better what exactly is a Zonder Commando? Um, who when you when you work on this subject who are part of this group um, and also um, in which camps do we speak about what will be the definition of a camp that we speak about under commando and maybe the last question is when we start using this term
2: right okay so um i mean there are different ways to use the terms under commando Firstly i mean in german it just means something like special squad so it doesn't mean anything particular and that's deliberately euphemistic as a lot of um, these kind of terms are i mean okay the process of yes um, of murdering the uh, gas chambers is on the behandelung special treatment uh, the final solution okay is also a, a euphemism as well and so it's it's a term that was used for more than one group and that includes groups of perpetrators as well. Um, so it, it doesn't have one fixed set de- definition. But What it's often used for um, is to describe groups of prisoners in a number of different camps, um, extermination sites, so places like Treblinka, Sobibur, Auschwitz-Birkenau, prisoners who were forced to um assist in some way with the process of 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 murder. Now in some of those other camps, places like Treblinka, Sobibor, those those terms are used um, by historians and, and um and people about them um, but are not always completely contemporaneous. They weren't used at the time. Um, whereas as far as Auschwitz beer canal is concerned, the group were called the zonda commando as they were part of the, the zonda commando so you see in their testimonies for example they describe themselves and they write down this words on the commando so it's used in different ways and the way that we've um, decided to define the term for this collection okay it's not to say it's, it's the it's the only way that it could be done but for this collection we decided to define the term by that group in auschwitz birkenau um, and it's uh, That group that we've concentrated on, and we say a little bit in the introduction as to why that is, because there are certain things that are particularly different about them. There's a larger number of survivors. There's a large amount of testimony about them. And also, actually, I would say they're a group that are are more notorious um, in a lot of ways because they were part of a much larger camp complex and so were witnessed by other prisoners. And so there were stories and thoughts about them from other prisoners within Beer Canal at the time. I mean, okay, rumors circulated around the camp. Strange representations of them were happening even while the camp was in operation. So we're looking at that that particular group, and the the, the Zonderkommando there uh, was a group that was formed um, and changed a little bit as as um, Auschwitz-Birkenau developed, but in its sort of, what well, I suppose, what you might call its classic formation, was the group that were in Birkenau and that worked in the crematoria of Birkenau. There was a group that worked in Auschwitz, one in the crematorium that's there. Philip Muller famously worked there for a short while. And then um, after working elsewhere for a while, transferred to the, the crematorium in Birkenau. But the, the group um, of which the, the vast majority of survivors come from, I mean, it's still a small number of survivors, but in relative to... to uh, because of the system, system.
0: Dominique. Because of the system, that every few months the the Nazis will kill them.
2: Right. So this is one of the, this is one of the interesting um, things that we we've dealt with with this, this image of the Zonder Commando. Now, of course, it is absolutely true that the Zonder Commando were subject to um, murder, and um, squads were. The numbers were, were taken down or, or increased as, as they were found to be useful. but there does not seem actually to have been this systematic replacement of them every three or four months that you hear in some of the, the stories about them. I mean I think I suppose most famously there's the, the doctor who was stationed in, um, in the crematorium Miklos Nisli uh, writes in his testimony yes there were they were replaced en mass every three or four months. But that doesn't seem to have been quite the case. If you look, for example, at Gideon Greif's book where he's um, interviewed members of the, the Zonda commander who survived, a lot of them survived for much longer than three or four months. If you look at the um, group of prisoners that we concentrated on where we uh, looked at testimony that they'd written, again, there are a number of them who only one of those who, who wrote the, the writing survived, um, of the writings that have been found only one of them himself survived but a lot all of the others uh, survived for longer than just three or four months so for example zalman gradovsky zalman leventhal leib langfuss um, all seem to have survived until um, came to auschwitz Birkenau in 1942 december 1942 and all survived until late 1944 um, Rodovsky seems to have died in the, the uprising um, in October forty four. Leventhal and Langfuss seem to have been killed when there, were, uh, there was another purge of the Zonderkommando in November 1944. Um, so there are, there, there are prisoners who lasted for much longer than this, which in the end is a kind of legend, right, of, of just these three or four months. Thank you. So, Dominique,
0: can you um, share with us a little bit about the way how a person become part of the Zonder Commando? Is it something that, and, and I'm interested mostly um, from the moments where people know about the Zonder Commando, but they still are or chosen or forced to be chosen to join this group, um, and I also wonder if it's like one way—like you can join to the Zonder Commando, but then you stay there, or is it more um, fluid that you can come back and leave this unit?
2: Yeah, I mean, it, I think that's that's a good question. Is is there one way to join, and I don't think that there is. Um, so there are different accounts from different people as to as to how it happened. The. The most common experience seems to have been, and this again is at the point when the the crematorium Birkenau, uh, um, in operation, the most common way seems to have been that people who were new arrivals at the camp, possibly having spent um, a week or so um, in quarantine, were chosen immediately after that, and and put to work straight away. So um, and. The logic of that seems to have been, and some of them write about it this way, um, that it was something that took them by complete surprise. They were taken to somewhere where they had to um, deal with emptying a gas chamber, a a set of dead bodies. The shock, the horror of uh, of confronting that site quelled any sense of resistance was sort of too much for them really to comprehend at that that point they're then forced un, un, under beating and whips Leventhal writes about this uh, to clear those bodies and it's only um, after they've carried out this work work um, in a sense in inverted commas a lot of um, them afterwards said you know work is not the word for this but only after they carried out this work that they were in a position to be able to process anything like what had happened to them. Um, so that, that certainly seems to be the case for, a, um, for most of the people who were the um, people who wrote the, the manuscripts, the, the scrolls of Auschwitz, that they were recruited very soon after arrival. But it's not necessarily true for every single um, um, every single member of the Sonderkommando. Um, and the, the question that you're asking about the fluidity Again, it would seem that once it had taken its, um, once the camp regime had worked out what form they wanted this squad to take, it was very, very rare for someone in the zone commander to be able to come out of it. Everybody who was in was in, and the only way out would be by being um, killed or by, by dying. And the
0: reason is um, that the Nazis didn't want them to to bring right. the witness the the stories, right.
2: Right. So they did not want uh, people who were witnesses to mass murder, witnesses to genocide. I mean, they were eyewitnesses to many, many thousands of deaths. Yeah. They did not want them to be uh, able to to bear witness to what it is that they'd seen. In the earlier forms, there are people who seem to have moved in and out of the, the squads. Um, and that actually is true for Philip Muller, for example, that he was in the squad in Auschwitz one, and then um, moved out. Yeah. Um, said he was stationed in Buna Auschwitz three for a short while, and then went back into the 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 Zonder commander after that. But that I think is in in its early stages, well when the process is still being worked out, improvised by the by the the Germans by the by the camp regime. Mm-hmm. By the time most of the people that we're most of the people who were survivors, most of the people who, who wrote the, the manuscripts were within the squad. They were um, recruited very soon after arrival and had no way out other than their own deaths. Yeah.
0: Thank you. One of the chapters, um, actually, it's the first chapter, which is fascinated by Professor Pollock. But it's a question that also coming all during the the. Um, the book is a question of cruelty, and and we have here maybe um, three areas of cruelty and 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 questions of violence. Um, one is of course um, the the violence by the Nazis um, to the victims and to the Sonderkommando. There are questions of ethics about the work of the Sonderkommando, and of course the third circle is the other. The other prisoners in these camps and how they received and how they think about the Sonderkommando. Can you can you explain us a little bit more about this complex question of cruelty and violence?
2: Yes, I mean I think Griselda Pollock's essay is a is a really powerful and fascinating explanation of, of this question. Um, so I mean, as as I. St- Said when talking about the recruitment of the Zonder Commando, and as what you see in some of their writings, um, there is violence um, direct physical violence carried out by um, German um, guards, SS guards, to members of the Zonder Commando in order to um, keep them at their work. But it's not something that was used with the same kind of um, regularity or extremity in in most cases, as as you saw in the rest of the camp, because these were people who they wanted to keep fit and well and carrying out a process that, as far as they were concerned, a murderous process, but a process that the, the Germans saw as useful. Okay, they had a useful function. So there is physical violence. It's not to say that there, there, was, there was none that was carried out against members of the Zonda commando by SS guards. But, and I think um, Pollock brings this out really well in the essay, there is another kind of violence that's being done to them, which is the cruelty of being forced to violate their own ethical precepts, violate their own religious beliefs in disposing of the dead in making sure that there is no trace left of them. Um, And I think Pollock talks very um, powerfully and at length at this idea of being forced to burn bodies was something that caused them particular kind of horror and particular pain. Um, And that, I think, is interesting also in that it seems to have also been something that other prisoners were particularly horrified by. So, there's a memoir by Kristina um, I Survived Auschwitz, where she talks about talking to a member of the Zonder Commando. Um, and the thing that she says, she sees him initially as um, basically subhuman. Um, and the thing that she says, and the reason why she finds him beyond the kind of moral pale, is you burn bodies. Okay. So, it's not that she's saying, right, you're helping to. Uh, you're helping people to be murdered, right? Because there was a function that the Zonda Commando partly had, just they, they were allowed or they were made to stand in the undressing room while um, victims were undressing. They weren't allowed to talk to the people there, but the SS regime essentially found that that was a way to keep people as they were undressing calmer, right? So they are, in some sense, made complicit in keeping people calm and more easy to um, more easy to murder, but what she, what Kristina Javolska finds particularly horrific about what they're doing is is what they're doing to to bodies that they're they're burning them. So in a sense, I, I think I would say, and I don't think this is what Dr. Pollock herself explores, but I I think what you see there is is a kind of violence that is done to the Zonda commander by making them kind of moral outcasts. Um, in the eyes of other other prisoners. So it's something that's a violence that's done, that's internalized on themselves. They feel, um, again, in some of the writings you see, they feel a kind of uh, guilt or disgust of themselves in, at times, but they also are provoking that in, our, in other prisoners as well. So it's a very difficult position that, that, that they're in. It's a very difficult question to assess um, their own judgment of themselves, prisoners judgments of themselves and how it is that we're supposed to be judging or not judging them um retrospectively as as scholars or as people thinking back to um the holocaust
1: Slash nbn fifty to get fifty percent off.
0: Um, I I wonder if you can um if we can say a little bit about the act of burning. And I wonder if the focus is on the act of burning. Um, maybe because of two reasons, as I understand, one is that the act of burning is an. This is a place where they shift from being passive, like just helping to doing the act of violence to the bodies and also secondly because the act of burning is actually the witness for what is happening because the prisoners in Auschwitz or in other camps maybe are not aware of the gas all the time but the smell of the burning is a, wit- is, is a witness for the violence.
2: Yeah that's a really interesting way of thinking about it um, which I don't think I don't think we've actually ex- ex- explored uh, as much as we probably could have done in, in the book, but I think that's a so that's a really really interesting question. Yes, I mean I, I think you I think you're right that um, that kind of disgust that you see, for example, in in Jevon's school, or this self disgust, um, does seem to ha- uh, could be said to to focus on this this moment precisely because it is something where you're doing something. Um, I think that that's quite that's quite plausible, um, and I think too. Um, I mean, Javolska, when she's she's writing about seeing this member of the of the Zonda commando, she talks about him being covered in um, covered in ash, and there are other people who've, who've um, witnessed uh, members of the Zonda commando also said that you know they were black from the the, the burning that they were carrying out, um, which also made them kind of look strange and um and a, and a kind of figure of horror so that was something that was on their bodies themselves but exactly as you say it's also something that becomes um the signal of what the what's going on at the crematoria and that's uh, that everybody can see and smell i mean particularly smell right um in the region around i mean um and that idea that it could be a form of witness mm-hmm. um, is something that members of the, the Zonda commando themselves did um, think about. Um, Zalman Gradovsky, in one of the texts that he wrote, talks about how the the, uh, the fire that's burning in the crematoria is something that the world should see and that's something that the world should be drawn to. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a way um, that they were thinking about it as well, I think. So that, that's a very, very... Interesting and, and, and valid point from you.
0: Thank you. Um, so the majority of the book focuses on questions of um, width of um, evidence and 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 history and how we think about the commando. And I really love the way how you divided the book to in a way. I mean, you have um, four four. Um, um, it's divided to four parts, but the three of them is about evidence from the time of the war, then we have the evidence of the retrospective when we think about that and when they witness after that about um, what happened there. And then we have the cinema and, and, and we have literature, right? Um, and I wonder if you can help us, because the question of, the, of history and the Holocaust is so complicated. So can you, can you share with us a little bit more about like, what do we find um, or which kind of voices we hear more during the war and which voices we hear in the retrospective when survivors of the Sonderkommando or people witnessing the Sonderkommando they share?
2: right I'll, I'll answer it in this way we'll we'll see if it answers your your question um i mean one of the things that we were very interested in when we 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 wrote about the zonda commandos manuscripts was the fact that these seemed like key pieces of testimony about uh, the holocaust about the Shoah. but there seemed to be very little interest in them hardly anything had looked at them in any any great detail they do get mentioned okay they they appear in histories um, but the, there's very little engagement with how it is that they're written. And if you look at them, there's, some, there's it's very, very striking that they're written in this um, often very highly literary or would-be literary way. Um, so one of the questions that we were asking that has sort of driven us on to do these other books is to think, well, what is it that has stopped people from reading these manuscripts? And so one of the things, obviously, I think has been this sense of, uh horror and disgust um but also fascination right at this group um which has meant either that people aren't interested in it in in talking about them or are interested but in a way that doesn't really help them to engage with the the kind of manuscripts that that the zonda commando wrote um so i think what i'd say is what if you're looking at what the 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 commander themselves write what you see or what they're producing themselves um during the 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 time that the the beer canal is in operation when the when the crematoria are are in operation is a very complex picture one that says uh that there are times when they are uh, unfeeling numb completely shocked and unable to process what's happening to them but that there are other times when they are able to reflect on it and they are able to feel certain things about what's happening. And I think in the way that we would read it, certainly that's one of the things we argued in matters of testimony. I think one of one of the things that's happening is they're thinking about how they can make their readers feel what's happening or what's happened to them. Um, and so that's a that's much more complex set of how they how they Think about their experiences and how they feel and feel through their experiences, than I think a lot of the post war ways of thinking of them have been. So, we explore this to some degree in the introduction to the book, where we say, okay, there seem to have been shifts that have happened over time of how people have been interested, and that uh, from a, a kind of sense that the Zonda Commander might stand for a general suspicion of survivors, that people only survived because they'd done something dubious. To criticism of them as being too passive. And I think this is where this idea that um, it's not true that they were purged every, or that they were liquidated every three or four months is quite important. Because someone like Bruno Bettelheim is able to say, well, there were 14 squads of the Zonda Commando, only one squad resisted, right? Everybody else just went to their deaths after four months. But that if you accept, and this seems to be what the evidence says. If you accept that that's not what the the composition was like, then you have to take into account also that there's a complicated um, way in which they existed as the people who who went along in an attempt to survive for a short for some time also resisted at others. Um, that then kind of I think changes changes the picture of of what it is that. Um, what it is that you can say about the, the Zonda Commando, um, and I think what we also say in that introduction is that, that there seem to have been two moments. I mean, we identify one in the kind of mid eighties. So show Claude Lanzmann's film, and a number of other texts that came out in the mid eighties seem to take an interest in the Zonda Commando, uh, particularly as Lanzmann is 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 concerned, as precisely as witnesses, but witnesses of in, as he's defining it. Okay, so there's an interest in. What he calls incarnation, um, these moments, um, most famously, um, of course, with Shaw, with Abraham Bomba, the, the barber um, freezing while he's he's reenacting and cutting somebody's hair, um, and unable to go on talking about what had uh, what had happened to him while he was in Treblinka, but also with Philip Müller as well. This moment where he reaches silence and says, "Right, I want to, I want to stop. I, I just can't go on at this, this point." Um, so that kind of those kind of moments um, are looking at the Zonda Komono in a different way, but are not the same as um, I would say what you can see from the Zonda Kimano's own manuscripts, because it's the, you can see there that there there are more um, complicated and more contradictory things that that are happening than um, than I think Lonsman uh, teases out in his film, powerful and extraordinary as that film is, and. We've seen very recently, in in uh, particularly I suppose in in, in Son of Saul, the film, um, another interest in the Zonda Commando which seems to be partly about a willingness now to address some of the more difficult issues of, of the Holocaust um, that have been addressed at other times previously but seem to be much more central to how people are thinking about and, and talking about the, the Holocaust now. I mean, one example of that, of course, is that Son of Saul won an Academy Award, right? It got an Oscar. Whereas if you think of the kind of Oscar-winning Holocaust films from not that much earlier than that, Schindler's List, Life is Beautiful, they were giving a much... I mean, it's unfair in some ways to call it easier, but okay, in some ways, a much easier view of, uh, of the Holocaust than, um, than Son of Saul, or perhaps we could say less difficult.
0: Part in, in the book, um, and there is a, a whole um, chapter about the religious life of the Sonderkommando, um, because as we see from um, the, the witnesses, um, we are learning that we have people who are religious and people who are non-religious, uh, atheist in, um, in in the same units. And I wonder if you can share with us, um, as the editor of the book, Um, What you take from that, like what we can learn about the meaning of being a religious person as part of the Sonderkommando. there are, as someone, I mean, my, my field is um, Jewish ethics and and Jewish law. So there are many halacha, the Jewish law, about questions in the Holocaust. Not so many about the Zonder Commando, which is fascinating that, I mean, I mean how many rabbis, but fr- from what I learned from reading this fascinating book, we have there people who know the Jewish law and they have deep Jewish spirituality. And I wonder if you can sum to us what? Um, what, is, what does it mean to be for them a religious person in, in, in the Zonder Commando?
2: I mean, I think um, I should admit, first of all, that this is not my, my specialism. And, and you're, you're talking partly about um, Gideon Greif's chapter there, talking about the, the religious life of the, the Zonder Commando. Um, so I would want to approach my answer to you here with, with a certain degree of, of, of caution. Um, but I suppose we we could certainly say for a start that it's important to recognize the the variety of experiences within the Zonda Commando and that there are people who are very religious and and continue to be religious um, while they're in the Zonda Commando, just as there are other people who are are not. Um, So that's one thing. I think another thing I would say is um, seeing people maintain religious life um also is important for us to understand important for us in our understanding of the zonda commando because some of that is simply about an attempt to maintain an everyday life an everyday existence okay um which however distorted and strange and horrific it is is something much more than this image that we have and I think even a film like Son of Saul portrays it to some degree, this image that we have of them as, as just a, a set of zombies, okay? They are people who are thinking and feeling and trying to live lives as, um, in some sense, as best they can, okay? Um, and that is part of what their religious life is about. I think also, and, um, you know, and I, I, think, I think Gideon Greif brings that out very well in, in that chapter by him. I think also what I what I could add is that looking at the manuscripts that the the Zon the commando wrote, one of those uh, um, one of the writers, Leib uh, was someone who had rabbinic training. He was a rabbinic judge at Diane. and certainly as we would read it, and I think someone who was better versed in. Um, the religious traditions that that he's that, that Langfus is coming from, but we made a start, I hope. But as we would read it, um, there are certainly ways in which his religious knowledge or his um, cultural, religious, social background work through the, the way in which he's able to write about and represent and bear witness to what he had what he had seen. So, for example, there are. Um, a set of very small anecdotes, you could almost call them, that he writes about of how people behaved on the, the uh, on the threshold of the gas chamber. And he calls that "details," Enselhead um, in Yiddish, and he um, he seems to use traditions of storytelling. And some people who um, survived and talked about him called him a storyteller. Called him a preacher, a magid, um, who's, he seems to be using traditions of storytelling at, in the way that he structures those stories of how people behaved. And you also see, I mean, he's, he's clearly has uh, interest in religious figures. He talks about um, different religious figures and how they behaved. And he certainly seems to feel that people who were religious um, behave better than people who were not. He contrasts an, an intellectual who seems to believe even as he enters the gas chamber that this it couldn't really happen with religious figures who are able to face up to it um but that that i would say you know shows that it's his set of understanding has shaped how he understands what's what's going on his his background has shaped what he how he understands what's what he's witnessing but also allows him to bear witness to it in in a particular form that makes sense to him and that you know would allow readers to make sense of as well
0: another thing that really come I mean as as I was reading the book I was thinking about the the geography of the people who are in the Sonderkommando right we have people from Greek and people from Hungary we have here complexity of languages we have complexity of um, culture and um, complexity of people who come much earlier and people who only came later in 44 and um and, and later um can you share with us about so when we say zonder commando we actually see many variety of colors from different geography places
2: yes absolutely and i think that that's important to remember um so a, as you say there were, there are groups who were from uh from poland um so a lot of the people who, who wrote the, the scrolls about Um, of Auschwitz were from um, Polish backgrounds from um, northeast Poland or from um, just north of of Warsaw Um, and they are people who were there for the longest um, in that they came in in late 1942 The, the group that preceded them and this I think might be part of where these stories about complete liquidation come from do seem to have Almost entirely been murdered just before um, these Polish Jews came um, came to Birkenau in December 42. And those were mainly from Slovakia. Philip Muller is the example here of someone who survived. There are, um, there's one other person who's, who's a survivor there, as far as I'm aware. It's just the two of them. But um, the, uh, so there's this group that are there from December 42. And then other groups come and are added to that, that squad as the operations in the crematoria expand, and then it's um, if, when there are moments when operations um, come down or are less um, intensive, where the squad is, is, is brought down in its numbers. Um, but precisely because there are people who are there for quite a long time, and other people are brought in, you end up with a, a squad that's very mixed. So Polish, exactly as you say, people who are then coming from um, France. A lot of those were Polish Jews. Um, one of the people who um, wrote a letter, who we've now identified um, as Hermann Strassvogel, Strassvogel I guess, um, who was originally from Poland but um, had, had settled in France. Um, was part of that group. David Oler, um, a painter who um, drew sketches of the crematoria, painted paintings about his uh, experience in the Zonda Commando, was part of that group as well. And then groups from, exactly as you say, Hungary, um, as in um, 1944, in the summer of 1944, the Hungarian Jews are, are brought in um, Hungarian Jews are also recruited into the Zonder Commando. There seem to be very few survivors from that group, um, so that's it's in some ways um, one of the more mysterious experiences. But we shouldn't forget also the Greek Jews, exactly as, as you mentioned as well. Um, the last document from the the scrolls by uh, Marcel Najary uh, was um, uh, the last one to be found. Found in nineteen eighty, was by him written in Greek. And there are other survivors of the the, um, Greek Jews of the Commando who talk often about being outcasts among the Commando because they couldn't speak Yiddish, because they couldn't therefore understand German. They were given the worst tasks. You also see the different memories of the experience, different memories of the revolt. Greek Jews will often talk about it was the Greeks who were responsible for the revolt. Polish Jews you see in the, their writings are saying it was the Poles who did it. Okay, in, so in a sense, there's nothing unusual here. If you bring a group of people who are from different backgrounds, there will be frictions between them. And under the kind of extreme pressure that they're living, um, then those um, those frictions will of course be worse, more deadly in some ways, more, um, more painful. But I think it's also worth bearing in mind um, although that is, I think, primarily the way that um, people have talked about the the difference between these groups, there are ways in which alliances or friendships happened across national boundaries. So, for example, the French Jews were generally of Polish background, generally had been born in Poland. Um, And so they spoke Polish, sometimes spoke... They had a way to communicate. But they also spoke French. And a lot of Greek Jews, or certainly some of the Greek Jews... Um, were um, educated to speak French as well, and so the, the, the French Jews were able to um, befriend and um, and work with the Greeks. And there's some element of communication possible that goes between the French, the, the Greek Jews, the French Jews, the Polish Jews. So you know that's that's not to say that they were all um, getting on. Let's say. It clearly was under the horrific conditions they were living, but clearly there were frictions there and resentments there. But you do see records of friendships. There's record of friendship in uh, Marcel Najary's letter where he talks about. um, um, No, that's wrong. (laughs) (laughs) You see, you do see evidence of that in Herman Strasbogel's letter, Uh, the French, the French um, letter where he talks about a friendship with a greek Jew Leon cohen um and you do see in the memoirs of of uh, greek survivors so marcel Nagery in his memoir talks also about being friends with he- Hermann strassford so he uh mm-hmm. there clearly were ties that went across national boundaries that, that you can see
0: thank you so my last question is uh it's it's a hard one because it's a question about ethics um so you have some chapters that are dealing with the question of the memory of the Sonderkommando, and we see the changes in the ways of memory of, of this uh, unit. Um, we have it in the museum in Auschwitz. You have a chapter about that dedicated to that. You have, of course, you just mentioned the the fascinating um, um, movie that I think shakes all of us who watch it, uh, um, Sol Sun. Uh you have the Grey Zone um movie, of course. Um you have in Israel there is um there are not a lot in literature about the Zonder Commando in um in literature, but you have a um, beautiful and very sensitive short story by Savion Librecht, um, who I believe also was translated to English and to German, um, and where she um, speak about um, a relationship between um, a father and his only uh, child, a, um, a, a young woman who come back home one day and she says, I, um, Abba, Father, I'm going to get engaged. And he's so happy for her. And then when the future son in law is coming to the house he just faints because he sees a zonder commando um from um you know from um um from the camp and and i wonder if you can help us um about what is the memory that we have about zonder commando as you see it and do you feel that there need to be more change? Um, do we need to walk to maybe another direction with some elements of this memory?
2: Yeah, I mean, as you say, this is this is a difficult question, and I think one of the things that we're trying to explore, and actually, I think probably needs to be explored some more, is the ways that the the memory so far has been. Um let's say at least kind of problematic so that the that sense of okay these are people i don't want to think about i can't bear to think about is one element that that is obviously a problem but even the the kind of interest in them takes a kind of form of a fascination that often is is problematic as well um i mean i guess yes i i think one of the things that that de- needs to to be done, and I hope that we're trying to move towards. I think there are other people who've who've done work in this area. Gideon Greif, for example. I mean, I think that um, Andreas Killian has done work with the Zonder Commando, Aurelia Kaliski in has has done work with the the writings of the Zonder the Commando as well. But I think I think we need to engage with them more with the sense that they are. Damaged but fully rounded human beings, and that um, although there's one of the reasons why we're thinking about the Zonda Commando is because they seem to have been the victims of what Primo Levi calls the Nazi's most demonic crime. Okay, and to be able to understand that damage that's done to them by the by being forced into this moral position where they have to violate some of their most deeply held principles there is still i would say too much emphasis on the question of damage we knew obviously we need to think of these as you know the, the harm that was done to them was was extensive lasting and and, um, and in some sense is probably irreparable but we need to think also about them as people who still had other human dimensions to them as well both as they were living in the camp and as they were survivors and i would just say even one little detail right that's so that recurs in the memory of the zomna commander this idea that every three or four months they were liquidated right that sounds like it's just a, a detail of facts that um might be wrong or it might not be but what I tried to do in my essay on Lev is that the gray zone, uh, perhaps less clearly than, than I could have done. But what I tried to do in that was to say, well, actually, there seems to be a reason that people hold on to this idea. And it is that it makes the lives of the Zonda commando much less, in a sense, much less understandable or much more um, strangely fascinating as well, which is to say. If you are presented with the choice, okay, you can die now or you can die in four months' time. And to live for that extra four months, you have to violate all the things that you hold most dear about yourself. That seems to be presented as just a moral choice. What is my life worth? What is four months of my life worth? Mm -hmm. But actually, what the members of the Zonda Commander were doing, insofar as they were able ever to make choices, and of course, that's, that's difficult. Um, particularly at the moment of recruitment, when they they're not fully aware of what it is that they're supposed to be doing and what's happening. But even so, at moments when they're asking the question, of, "Is my is can I carry on with my life?" Actually, they were looking at um, a situation where they didn't know they didn't know how much longer they had to live, and so forth. So therefore, one of the things that they're asking is actually just a question about not. What's my life what's four months of my life worth? But what can I do possibly to give myself just a chance, a small chance of surviving? And I think that in a way is a lot more understandable um, than to be saying someone was faced with a choice of you know you will die in four months, but you'll be able to live for four months if you do these particular things. So I think, you know, even even these simple facts about the Zonda Commando are ones that I would say, have a certain kind of moral weight to them. And I think it's important to for us to get those facts right as well. But I, I think that is part of a picture where we need to be thinking about them as, you know, more than just the damage that was done to them. The damage is important, but the rest of who they are is important as well. Dominique, thank you so much for editing together with
0: Nicolas chair the book Testimonies of Resistance, and for being with us here in the New Books Network. Thank you. Thank you very much. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission?